Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I'll continue through Jonah uh, today. I took you through Jonah 2 last week, and I took you through Jonah 1 probably five or six weeks before that. So uh, Kendall and I thought it was in order that I will just give you a quick recap of Jonah, very brief, um, and then I will, I will pray, I will do the reading of the word, and then we will start, um, we'll start Jonah 3. Sorry, one second, I totally lost Jonah 3 for a second there. All right. So uh, Jonah is a story that looks like us. Um, Jonah is the story of an Old Testament prophet called to um, preach a word from the Lord to a Gentile people. Um, the interesting thing about Jonah is that in the normal formulation in these prophets after David's time and as Israel goes up and down in their faithfulness, uh, we get this regular formula. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. And he tells them what to say, and then they get up and they do exactly that, and they're showing their obedience. But Jonah leads with a twist because it says, instead, Jonah ran away. And we've looked over those last two weeks of Jonah, why he ran away. We'll learn really the true reason why he ran away in chapter 4. Um, Lord willing, I'll preach that sometime this year. And uh, so Jonah runs, and he begins to backslide. He goes down. He keeps going down to Joppa, down into the ship. And we see his spiritual state spiraling down and down and down to the point where he finds himself on a ship full of pagans going the wrong way. He's going to the other side of the known world from Nineveh. He's just, I'm, I'm going the other way. The Lord sends a storm. They're all going to die. Jonah tells them who he is, and they realize it's your fault. We don't want to throw you off. And then he tells them, you've got to throw me off. The Lord, is, the Lord is judging my situation. So he, they throw him off, and at the brink of when he thinks he's going to die, the Lord saves him through the miraculous means of a fish, a big fish. And we went through Jonah's prayer last week. Um, and the interesting thing about Jonah's prayer is that while he's grateful that he's been delivered, he's still not penitent for what he did. He, didn't, he is not sorry. And that will lead us into uh, Jonah 3. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, your word, how it is a light to our path, how it reflects to us who you are, who we are, and who we need in light of those two facts. We need Christ. Um, Lord, I pray that you would um, illuminate chapter 3 of Jonah to us this morning, that uh, my stammering would equal your word, your unction, your power getting through to your people, that we would be edified um, by Jonah 3 in regards to revival, evangelism, in the work you do in us as we go out to fulfill the Great Commission. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'll begin in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. It's titled, I think, in yours, Jonah Goes to Nineveh. So he's just been spit out on dry land, and he's, he's back to his job. And, he says, and it says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. 
and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and the beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So that's a pretty amazing picture of Jonah. That's not everyday preaching. That's not everyday revival. Uh, This is essentially the story of a problematic prophet going into a city and the whole place is turned upside down. The only thing I could think equivalent of that today would be if a reluctant or if a, a very poorly equipped missionary went to China and then the government was just like, yeah, we regret all this stuff, we're turning around, we're going to start changing our lives. And you'd be like, what? <laughs> like, I didn't even expect that from here, let alone over there. Uh, that, that's the story of Nineveh. And the interesting part is that the hearers don't want to hear that story. Um, I couldn't help but think, when I, when I read this revival, that's really what happens in Jonah chapter 3, is a revival. Um, it's just a whole turning over. It's not simply an evangelistic effort, but it, it's a wildly successful one. Um, as far as this message from God going through his prophet to the people. I couldn't help but think of this um, when I was in college. I came home, you know, I have an evangelical family, and there's this, so that, you know, you get stuff in the mail from churches and whatnot, and there's this, there's this magazine, um, I, think it was even a, I think it was even a Times magazine, I was like, what is this? Like, when did we ever start bringing this around? And it was Billy Graham on the front. I was like, oh, okay. And so I start flipping through it, and at the time, like, you know, Billy Graham's the man. This is, this is exactly what everyone should be doing. Like, everyone should preach just like this. And it is quite amazing, like, some of the things he did, regardless of where you sit with his ministry. Uh, I think the biggest thing that struck me in there was there's this picture of uh, Korea. I think it's, it, they're in Seoul, and uh, there's like a million, there's like 1.2 million people, just an ocean of people. And he's up on this lift preaching with, a, with, a, uh, with like a translator. And you're like, wow, like when did this happen in my lifetime? Like, when, where, this isn't happening anywhere. And you keep reading, and you, you can listen to his, you know, plenty of his moving sermons. And then I read something in there that really struck me. Um, it was a quote from Billy Graham at the end of his ministry. And he said, I am hopeful that at least 5% of the people I preached to were actually serious. And I was like, oh, that's kind of, a, that's kind of like the optimistic picture we paint, we paint of revivalism. 5%, that's like 1 in 20. Like, a million people, and you're like, eh, probably most of them are just there for the ride. And uh, that just got me thinking about revivalism and evangelism today. And Jonah, it, it might be tempting to view Jonah as an example of we're doing it right, and that's how we should do it today. We should do it just like this. We should show up and leave, and that's it. Um, but that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is go to the nations discipling people and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's this, there's this key to evangelism that it's an, extended, it's, an extended, it's an extended situation that it just doesn't end overnight. Now, I'm not bashing Billy Graham. I just brought that up. I can't condone everything that went on, but glory to God, many people were reached through that. But it brings up this idea of revivalism. 
And so what is revivalism? Revivalism is essentially the standard evangelical model within America of how to do evangelism. And I'll just tell you up front, our tradition doesn't look happily upon revivalism. Um, revivalism is essentially this. You've probably experienced this in your life. A preacher preaches. Maybe they're a, a, maybe they're a velvet Billy Graham, and they're preaching, and then they have you calm down to the altar, and you're going to pray again. But the problem is, is you might come and do that again next week, the same thing, and you might not really know why, and then you might not receive any discipleship in the end after, after that. So that's revivalism. It's this idea of we're going to plan these events where people get saved, but then that's, it, it ends there. It's, it's an experience. It's not a lifestyle change. And so I just wanted to bring that up as I go. I want, I want you to be thinking about that as I exposit through Jonah 3, um, this idea of revivalism today and how it might be tempting to read Jonah 3 that way, um, but that's not what happens here. Um, this is a miraculous thing that God ordained, um, and the Bible has more to say about Nineveh after that. So we'll start in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 3. Um, chapter, or verse 1 is a mirror of the first verse of chapter 1-1. One, one. So if I confuse you on that, 1-1 one, one looks just like 3-1. He says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, but he says, instead of Jonah's full name, he says a second time. Um, that's a lot like a lot of us <laughs> who have needed to hear it twice, right? Um, Jonah's been whipped. Jonah's been chastised. He comes a second time. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Same thing. And then he says... Instead of God saying, for their evil has come up against, uh, to me, he says, and call out the message against it that I tell you. <laughs> and so God's saying, and listen to me this time. And, Jonah, and Jonah's going to do it. So he rose up and he did it. There's the normal formula that we, should, we, were, we were expecting at the beginning of the book. And so we're kind of getting Jonah's new leaf. We're kind of getting his second start here. We were expecting him to do it like all the other prophets get up and go. Um, so he goes up. It says it's an exceedingly great city. Um, it's huge, essentially, and a three days journey in breadth. That verse kind of confuses some people because you might think, it takes three days to walk across this city? That's insane. Uh, what city? There's no city like that in the world today. That's big. Um, not actually what this verse is saying. This is saying that um, because of the size of the city, you could view that word of journey the same way in, in the Old Testament you view the word visit. In other words, this is a really big city, and Jonah's going to be there for three days. So this is a three-day visit. There's sort, of a, there's sort of a way ancient people show up. The first day you show up, the second day you come for the meet, it's sort of the reason you're there, and the third day is like return. So it's really just saying this, this is going to take three days of preaching for Jonah. Um, and we continue into verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. So it's the first day. And he calls out and he gives his simple message. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In Hebrew, that's just four words. He says, 40 days, Nineveh upside down. And the crazy part is in verse five. They believed him. <laughs> why, what, why would they believe him? You look at all the other prophets, they, they give messages to the people who have the oracles of God. They give messages to the Israelites, to the people of God, and they don't believe them. But we have these Ninevites Nineveh is in, in, in Nahum, it's called the bloody city. It's, these are the pagans of the pagans. This is the worst place to be. It's violent. They're obsessed with materialism. They're warmongers. They're just conquerors. What is it that makes these people believe, believe Jonah? And in fact, the interesting thing is this. It doesn't say they believe Jonah. Verse 5 says, and the, people, and the people of Nineveh believed God. 
you would expect, if I was just reading it, you'd think they believed Jonah, right? Like Jonah came with the message, they're like, okay, I believe him. So why did they believe him? Well, the simple answer is God, God prepared them to believe Jonah. Just as, just as Jonah has been providentially led to this point by God through the boat and the fish, being spit out, walking back here and finally doing his job, the Ninevites have also been prepared providentially for this moment. God's been doing things. Some of the things that, I mean, they're, they're pagan people, they're superstitious people, but God can use those means. God can use any means at his will. And so between all of the bad things that happen in bad places, between wars breaking out and political distress, and if you're an ancient people, you see an eclipse and you think something bad's going to happen. Earthquakes. Whatever it was, we don't know. That's not the point. But the point is, is they were ready. Jonah comes and preaches the most brief message, and it turns the whole, it turns the whole, uh, turns the whole city upside down. Another interesting thing about Jonah's message is that it says Nineveh will be overthrown. And we might assume that that means judgment day's, judgment's coming, there's nothing, there's nothing's going to change, you're done. Um, overthrown, it, it, like I said, literally, literally, it's upside down. So really he's saying that moment is coming, prepare yourselves. Um, if you remember in Acts, I think it's the Pharisees that say that the disciples have turned the world upside down. Well, they didn't do a bad thing. They did a good thing, right? It just depends on what your perspective is. Do you agree with what they're doing? Or are you detesting their ministry? Are you faithful to God? Or are you in desperate need of repentance before he comes? That's what Jonah's saying. And that's, cl- that's, that's clear to them. There's, it's clear that it's, it doesn't look good, but there's hope. And so they do what they can. Um, this message, the, ambig- the ambiguity here is similar to the judgment day that will come our way. Judgment day is going to be a terrible day for some people. It's going to be a scary day. But for us, that'll be a day of deliverance. This stage will end and we will go on to glory. Um, the Bible, these prophets are preparing us for that message from Jesus as we go from Old Testament to New Testament. It's just baffling that he gives like a forward, th- a forward statement. He could have said more, but clearly it wasn't much. And it just shows us that God can bring glory for his name even through the failures of his children. You could have the most elegant sermon. You could be the best speaker, incredibly engaging, lively, great tenure. But if the Lord isn't in there, it's falling on deaf deaf ears. We've seen great preachers in this revivalism movement. Beautiful words, amazing. Just they're perfectly ordered. They, They know what they're doing. And then no fruit, right? Um... And then you have Jonah, who didn't want to come here. <laughs> he, he still doesn't want to be here, it seems to me. And chapter 4 will make that clear. He gives his simple message, and everybody believes it. <laughs> and it's not, it's not magical. It's not, just, it's, not just a, it's not just a cheap, easy thing. It's to show that the Lord has providentially ordered our evangelism. He's ordered Jonah's ministry. And in spite of Jonah's weakness and failure, God's going to have his way. Jonah's instrumental, but really the Holy, this is the Holy Spirit's work. And that's made clear, I think, in verse 4 and 5. He gives a simple message, and they all believe him. They put, they, and it's not just that they believed him. They, put on, they call for a fast, a very extreme one. They put on sackcloth, and from the greatest to the least, they repent. It's a sincere repentance. And uh, that's where, that is a revival, And I've said a lot about revivalism, but I want to say this. Revival is a good thing. Revivalism is a movement, but revival is the goal. We should pray for revival. We should want to see revival. 
revival is essentially evangelism catching fire. And it's happening here. It's a citywide response of faith and repentance, and it's mirroring Jonah's encounter with um, the mariners. He didn't even want to talk to them. He, he just told them who he was. He told them that God, my God is the one bringing this calamity on us. <laughs> and they ended up repenting and offering sacrifices, even though Jonah, Jonah was running from his calling. Now he's begrudgingly accepting his calling. And these, uh, these people are just, vast, they're just, they're just, the whole city is changing. Um, and this shows us who we are in relation to God's into God's purposes for, for those who are under impending doom. We're, we are the instruments of mercy. We are the instruments of grace. But it's not our message. It, we are the messenger. And so in regards to evangelism today, we can't force it. We can't plan for people to be converted, right? We can do our job on this, light, on this side of providence. We can assume everyone here needs to hear the gospel. We know that. But we can't change the hearts, that's what we see along the story of Jonah so far, is that God is changing the hearts of unbelieving people through his messy kids. Um, and we're called to continue that ministry. We see, the interesting thing about Jonah is that it's the prophet who's called to a Gentile people. And that's, that was the big deal with Jesus coming, is that we're going to start the church here with the Jews, and then Paul's going to go and spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And we see Jonah doing the same thing, and we're called to continue that ministry. We are, in a, we are in America, the West, often called a Christian nation. I think, I think we should rethink that. Um, I'll tell you this, Decatur's not a Christian city. This is not the kingdom of God. <laughs> uh, there are unbelieving people here who maybe have a background in whatever, this or that, religiousness. Um, but there are people every day, we see, who have not actually heard the gospel clearly laid out, um, and the option to get rid of their guilt, their fear of death, that can all go. They have that. It's there. Um, but let's not assume that people know the gospel and they just need to be poked more. We need to be professing the gospel as, as Paul did and as Jonah. Jonah brought the word of the Lord here. It's not particularly Christ and him crucified, but it did really lead to repentance and faith. And Jesus himself even says that Nineveh will be raised up in the judgment to judge the Pharisees. So, can't speak for every Ninevite, but clearly this was a a sincere and contrite heart from the Ninevites. And then at this point in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah leaves the scene. It seems that he goes outside of the city after his three days, and we have this about the king of Nineveh. The word reaches the king, and he gets up, he gets off of his throne, he covers himself in sackcloth, he removes his robe, and he sits in ashes. He's humbling himself. If you don't know what that imagery is, that's how ancient people show there's, it's self-denial. I think the best example you might be uh, familiar with is when David does that after Bathsheba's first child dies and he's penitent for his adultery and his murder and he, his son dies and he says, I will go down to Sheol with him. But he's, he's showing that I messed this up and this is on me. And even the king is doing that. And that would be a shocking thing at this time. Um, imagine if you just heard a political leader say, everything we're doing is wrong and I'm done doing it. Well, he would lose all of his, <laughs> he'd lose all his contacts. <laughs> he would no longer have the power he has. Um, this king is not an emperor. He's not the sovereign. He's a vassal king. That is, there's, a, there's a, a greater king over this king, and he's got a boss he's got to answer to, 
And so the trick in the world, and in the ancient world and today, is to, I'm not going to get too involved religiously, and I'm going to let people do what they want because I can keep control. You can see that in the New Testament with Rome. You have Pilate there who's just sort of juggling the Jews and now this whole Christ thing, and he's just trying to keep the mob off of him. And you would assume that the king of Nineveh would do that too, that you would have the lower class repenting because there's hope, and maybe some people convinced of their guilt. But we even have the king not only repenting himself, but he, he orders everyone to repent. He says, by the decree of the king of the nobles, nobody's eating, not even the animals are eating, no one's drinking water. Like, this is as fast as it gets. This is a fast of fasts. And he says, let the man and beast be covered in sackcloth. So he's saying the animals even, that might shock you, like, wait, the animals repent? This sounds far-fetched. Um, in one regard, it does, but the truth is, um, if you go to that section of the world now, this is like modern-day Iraq, um, if you go there today, if you go to a funeral and there's, like a, there's horses, like let's say, pulling the, the, the coffin, they're going to have sackcloth on, even today. And so it's really not that strange, and you have to remember, this isn't God telling a king to have the animals repent. This is a very superstitious pagan king doing what very superstitious pagan kings do, which is all of the weird kind of barbaric, animalistic religion of the day. So, yeah, this, this guy doesn't know the, his left hand from his right. God will say that later. But it just shows the intensity of the repentance. It's like unilateral. It's everybody. Um, we're not even letting the animals eat. Like, everyone is in self-denial because of what we've done. He says, everyone turn from your evil ways, from the violence. And then he says the same thing the, mar- he says the, same thing the mariners know- said. He said, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. And they're saying, it might work. <laughs> and still, they show they really don't understand much about God. But then the interesting thing is verse 10. He says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. In other words, the repentance was clearly sincere. We get God's, we get God's word on it. He doesn't bring the calamity. And there's all sorts of questions of that God changes mind. We'll get to that in the end, but... Um, the point is, is that Jonah's, Jonah's ministry worked against Jonah's will and against Jonah's weakness. Everyone repented. The whole city repented. This is what every pastor wants, right? This, and that's a good thing. It's not like, oh, look what I did. It's, we're here for the gospel to get across. We would love to see Decatur turned upside down. We would love to see this, our cities turned upside down. And here it actually works. Most people, that, that we don't see that anywhere else. We don't even see this kind of repentance from the Israelites until after the exile. The Israelites never repented like this. It's always a mixed bag. This is, this is Jonah bringing back the message to Jews like, yeah, the Ninevites, they all, every one of them repented. And they're like, we've never done that. Um, it just goes again to show God's sovereignty in evangelism. Now, obviously, it's not a one-to-one, but it is, it is a parallel to our new, covenant, our new covenant mission of spreading Christ and Him crucified. Um, it just shows his sovereignty. God prepared all of these people. God was preparing Jonah. And Jonah's preparation was pretty rough, it seems. And that brings up another point, is that the, the, message, um, the message won't hit hard if we don't believe it ourselves. We have to be prepared for that message. We have to be contrite. We have to have a contrite heart. We have to be merciful to the people we're giving it to. If it hasn't really affected us, it won't affect the people that we preach to. Um, this isn't just in our preaching on Sunday morning. This is, just, this, is our, this is our basic evangelical opportunities when we, when we have people in our lives. 
to bring up something about Christ, to ask them where they sit with God. Um, if the Lord hasn't made the way, um, there's nothing we can do. You could be a beautiful preacher, you could, you could preach beautifully, or you could be the broken vessel that Jonah is. Ultimately, this is up to the Lord. Jonah doesn't seem to know it worked yet. We'll see in chapter 4 that he, uh, he goes outside the city hoping that they aren't spared. Um, and so far, we, we know as the readers that God can forgive anybody. Um, so was Jonah's repentance because of, or sorry, was Nineveh's repentance because of Jonah's obedience? No, it seems that God's perfect plan played out. And that's the beauty of evangelism. It's God's work. We are just instrumental. We are simply his instruments, which he is fine-tuning through the process of a life sold out to Jesus and his gospel. I'll, I'll just bring a few. Um, there's maybe if you might have a few questions about um, this last verse. He says, um, God relented. Um, sometimes on... Uh, you might read in some Bible that is no good, like some translation, that God changed his mind. Um, don't go around saying that, please. <laughs> that's, a, that's a dangerous thing. God does not change his mind. There's no new information that can inform his decision or what plays out in history. It's all sovereignly, it's all sovereignly decided. If that makes you uncomfortable, it usually makes everyone uncomfortable at first. But as you read scripture, um, it will start to bring you comfort knowing that he's got you. And that in all of this, all of this, all of his plans for these, probably millions of people in Nineveh or in Assyria, he's still working for Jonah. Like, he's still loving Jonah. And you're not supposed to read yourself into the Bible, but here we are very much like Jonah. Jonah is the, one of the spots where it's like, yeah, um, I at least act a lot like Jonah. I'm no prophet. But um, this sovereignty should be comforting to us. Um, I'll take you to uh, Joel chapter 2, uh, just a few books over. Um, this is... This is um, this is sort of what the Jews and the hearers would know about this whole calamity coming. It's not God changing its mind, his mind. It's really just how God interacts with people. He judges sinners justly, and he is merciful to the penitent in heart. He's merciful to those who repent. Uh, we, have, uh, we have verse 10. My mistake, sorry. Sorry, verse 12, my mistake. So uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, he's talking to Israel, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in, like we heard last week, in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So it's just showing, it's showing us the, the, the reader, it might sound like God changed his mind, but the reader knows this is how God operates. They know he's merciful. Jonah knows this. He'll tell you later. But we see all over the prophets that we don't really know the end um, as regards to election or as regards to who, who's going to make it through the judgment. And for practical purposes, we should assume that everyone needs to hear that message and that everyone has a chance. We have uh, Jeremiah as well. I think Jeremiah brings out a great point about contingency and sovereignty, which is what we're talking about. Jeremiah 18, um, 7 through 10. 
Jeremiah says, and this is the Lord speaking, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation uh, concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have intended to do to it. So that's what, those are the two pictures we see. We see him, we see that Israel's breaking its covenant and so judgment is coming. And we're seeing that he's forgiving this generation of Ninevites. It's important to remember that he isn't, he's forgiving this generation of Ninevites. Because the book right after Jonah, or at least in the, in the Bible that the, uh, that the uh, disciples used, we have the book of Nahum, or Nahum, as my wife likes to correct me. Sorry, it's a hard habit to break. <laughs> Nahum is essentially, a, it's, it's just a whole prophecy about 100 years after Jonah of calamity coming to Nineveh. So we have Jonah, we have the story of Jonah and Nineveh being forgiven against all odds, against the prophet's will, against their, against their own sinful nature. God does his miraculous work of changing sinners' lives. And then 100 years later, oh, and in that 100 years, by the way, the Ninevites are used to judge Israel, so Assyria comes and the exile begins. And then 100 years later, you have, you have judgment coming on Nineveh again. So he didn't promise it forever. This isn't universalism. This is the message coming to a people who are repentant, and it isn't just God just overlooks sinners. Judgment still comes to Nineveh and Nineveh's ways, because we see in a few generations these, uh, these people return to what their forefathers knew and repented of. Um, so that's, that's, that's Nineveh in the story of Jonah. It's a miraculous story. It doesn't happen all over. It doesn't happen in our time. Um, we should believe God for revival, but we should not force it. We, we can't pretend to force it. Nineveh is a great look at revival. It's all God's work. They just, they just repent, and you're like, why? It even says they believe God, and they that, that's only the Holy Spirit's work. It doesn't matter how, how well we are, how good we are at preaching. You might see that word in your notes, unction. Unction's that word that preachers use. It's that force behind preaching that makes it work. I got words, but they don't have any weight without that unction. And we all have that. You don't have to be a preacher to be worried about the Holy Spirit working through your words or through your experiences with other people as you go out and evangelize. You need that Holy Spirit unction. And that unction comes from the process we've the process of sanctification we've seen in Jonah. He didn't have that in Jonah verse one, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 1. He did have it in chapter 3, verse 1. That process of the, the, the message of God's mercy becoming real to Jonah because he finally realized he needed it is what equipped him to preach to the Ninevites. Even though he's still not a perfect prophet, he still doesn't like the Ninevites. He doesn't even want them, he doesn't even want them to repent. Um, that unction, that power of experiencing the word for yourself is what equipped him to do evangelism. And so now I just have some closing thoughts on, on, on evangelism and repentance and everything we've heard in chapter 3. So again, revival is needed and we should pray for it, but revival as a movement and as a system has not helped the church faithfully steward the gospel message. Um, it results in people being self-deceived. They go and like, yeah, I prayed the prayer. That's not how you're ever converted. <laughs> um, or it results in immature Christians who don't have the assurance to grow. Assurance is an essential piece of growing. If you don't have the assurance that you are a Christian, um, you're not going to seek the things of God. So we should pray for revival, but we should be concerned with the long-term effects of revival. 
Um, the revival in Nineveh lasted a generation or so. Um, I pray in my own family it lasts a lot longer than that. <laughs> um, when I think of evangelism, or when I think of effective gospel ministry, we have to be broken for the gospel. This is what John Owen said. He said, the word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. So when we've been broken for the gospel, it's, import, it's important to understand that that's a necessity. It's not just words. It's not just repeat after me in Sunday school. Um, I grew up in revivalism. I grew up going to different countries, preaching at schools, um, different, like having a translator. And then I think I was probably 19 or 20, I realized, why am I the only one here preaching that's using the word sin? You can't leave that out. That, that's what Jonah said in verse 5, right? He said, judgment is coming. <laughs> Get right with God. Um, if we love people, we have to be loving enough to tell them the, the truth, which is that you're a sinner in need of, in need of a savior. Uh, you, you're sick and you need the cure. And we have the cure and there's only one. His name is Christ and him crucified. But a lot of revivalism is sparing people of the gospel um, the, the contrite heart that comes, the conviction that comes from hearing the gospel. So it's important to view Scripture, if we want to be built up in that way, of we're stewarding the gospel well in our day-to-day lives. We need to view Scripture as interpreting us. Where am I needing to be sanctified so that I am the kind of vessel that brings the gospel to people? What about me is hindering? Usually it's just our lack of caring. If we're honest, when we go to work, um, there are people we well know that's not a Christian. But we're not moved to mercy like we need to be. Um, you'd you'd want to condemn that and say, how can you not be moved to mercy if you've, if you've, heard, if you've heard and believed on Christ? But the truth is, is we all experience that every day when we go out. It's like, I'm not moved to mercy for this person like I need to be. Um, we, need it to, we need our hearts moved and we need to ask God to move our hearts. Third thing about evangelism that I, I, I can't help but think about um, when I read Jonah. Like I said, it, it's tempting to think we've got to do exactly what Jonah does. Well, we're not all called to Jonah, as Jonah was called. We're not all called to do- write a book of the Bible. In fact, none of us are, by the way. Um, what are we called to do? Like I brought up the Great Commission earlier. We are called to go into all the world and make disciples. And so in doing that, in doing that first initial piece of evangelism, I can't help but think of this as like, why are we not evangelizing to those closest to us? Not just our workers, but what about our, like the people we work with, but what about our families? Um, mothers. The Lord has assigned to you the task of bringing the gospel to your young children. That's evangelism. Take that seriously. Or fathers in this room. You have been designed to bring the teachings of God and of Christ to your family and be concerned with their souls. So in revivalism, you might have grown up in the kind of church like me that works so busy making everybody else shoes, getting everyone fit, getting everyone in the church, that our own kids go without shoes. Um, it's sad that a stereotype in church or evangelicalism today is that pastors' kids have to have this crazy uh, season where they go out and then they become the prodigal son and all that. It's like, it really just shows like we're, we're, we need to be strong on the gospel in the little things if we're ever going to see a revival. Um, and lastly, if there's, any, if there's anything clear in Jonah, in Jonah chapter 3, it's always remember that evangelism is God's work. You can't regenerate hearts. 
Um, that's his work. You, you certainly can't make God do it. Um, when you're evangelizing, and you're evangelizing in Decatur, or you're evangelizing to your family, um, there will be people who think you are foolish. That's what most of the prophets experienced. You're a fool, you're wrong, nothing's happening, we are the people of God, and that can happen to you, it will happen to you. You might feel, I'm not equipped to evangelize, I can't answer everybody's questions. Get equipped, but then, if, let's say you are equipped, let's say you're, a, you're an apologist, there are still going to be people who think you're a fool anticipate that <laughs> and love your family enough to keep fighting for them. You will have family or you will have friends who think the gospel is foolishness. That's what a hardened heart is and that doesn't change until God does his, his work in their heart. Don't give up. <laughs> Don't give up on the evangelistic effort of bringing the gospel to people. If you've experienced God's love the way all Christians have, I know you have, you want that for other people. You're scared for them. You don't want them to keep going. Jonah didn't even have that heart for the Ninevites, and God did it anyway. So again, God doesn't need you. <laughs> God does not need you to do this. But thanks be to God that he's sovereign over in delivering us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that while sinners are still sinners, we live for Christ by loving our neighbor, bringing them the gospel. Their sinful hearts might rage against you. Um, you might have as much knowledge as Paul, and they will still stop their ears. You can't help that. But you can go out there, and you can reach the ones that God has prepared. We all have those opportunities. You don't need to be a preacher. <laughs> in fact, in the kind of church we're in, evangelism looks a lot different than revivalism. It happens at the coffee shop. It happens in your parents' living room. It happens at work when someone is going through a catastrophe, and no one else seems to care but the Christian in the room. Those are your opportunities. You don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> you don't have to spend thousands of dollars to go to other countries. Glory to God for doing that and that it works. But it seems that revivalism has taught us we evangelize overseas and we live normal American lives here. Um, don't get caught in the trap of reading yourself into the, into the function of Old Testament prophets. We are called to Little Town Decatur. We are called to evangelize to the few that God sends our way and regardless of their response, our message stays the same. The same. We don't make it palatable. We don't take out sin. We preach Christ and Him crucified, that through the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Christ, God saves sinners, and that He requires faith and repentance. He's not just your buddy. He's, ki he's king, and we hope He's your king. That, that's the message. That's the gospel. Jonah brought this message to the Ninevites, and they repented. And so the last thing to say about Jonah is that we are always being shaped as better gospel vessels for God. He's always shaping us to equip us for his work more. And that comes with failure sometimes. That comes with people thinking we're foolish. That comes with people not caring. Um, we live in an age where people are probably going to come at the, at the Christian faith intellectually because we can't defend it. The truth is we can defend it, and that takes work. But even when we can defend it, God still has to change their heart. God does change hearts. We see that in Nineveh. We see that with Christ coming. We see that, we see that with the apostles turning the world upside down. He is essentially inviting us to be instrumental in that process and for our hearts to be changed and for our hearts to grow in holiness and love for him as we see evangelism play out. So we don't wait around for it. We get up, we go, just as Jonah was called, and we love our neighbor because Christ first loved us. He died for us. And so we lay our life down for him in regards to 
preaching his truth. That's all I got for Jonah 3. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I thank you that you are merciful to Gentiles like us, Lord. In this chapter, we act like Jonah, but really, uh, we were once the Ninevites. We didn't know any better, um, yet we knew what we were doing was wrong, and we, you found us, you found each of us in our darkest hour. By your will, by your providence, you put people and situations into our life that we confess to you, Lord. And I pray that if there's anyone here who has not confessed to you, that they would. We thank you that you save sinners, that you change our hearts, and that we respond to you in faith. We know it all starts and ends with you. Lord, help us to be passionate about evangelism. Help us not to hate our neighbor, think that God will never change them. Help us to know that if he can change me, he can change them. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our church. I pray that we would be a light to Decatur and Lord, if it is your will, if America goes through another great revival in our time, Lord, help our church to be be the small part of that in the way that we can. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.